This is Catherine Cruz. You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This morning, we talked to Maui Mayor Mike Victorino about, among other things, the news that the Justice Department wants Hawaii's quarantine lifted. Is it unconstitutional? Here's Mayor Victorino's take. If you look, other states are imposing 14-day quarantines. It's kind of scary, yet in, on the other side, hey, let's find out. Let's know if this is legal or not. I believe it is. We think we have that right. Well, let the courts decide if this, if this is such a big issue, yeah? Well, they did point out that Alaska is imposing the test before you get on the airplane. That's correct. People here, there are lots of voices that have been calling for that, but we haven't seen that yet put in place. My voice has been with them. I feel like anyone coming in from outside of Hawaii should be tested and then show that they have a negative PCR test before they enter the state. We're not going to catch everybody, and somebody's going to slip through the cracks, but we're going to work very diligently to make sure what happens protects you, the residents of Hawaii and Maui County. There's no question. You must be the base. You must be the priority. And so long as that is fulfilled, I'm willing to open up. If not, I will fight very vehemently not to open. I mean, there has been some effort to make sure that whoever is in the quarantine, whether you be a traveler or a returning resident, that, you know, they go by the rules. Absolutely. And and they're now training contact tracers so that people can be checked on. We are making sure that the rules and regulations that are in place are improved and constitutionally, of course, and making sure that people abide and making them understand respect is two ways. You earn it and you give it. And to earn it, you have to follow what rules we have here to protect our people. And then you're going to have that respect level that you deserve. We're going to see what happens in the courts. I won't guess. I'm not going to assume anything at this point. We'll see what the, the, the courts rule. I believe we've done everything right to this point. And I can say my facts back me up. Back on March 24, 2020, we had nine cases here on Maui. By April 28th, we had 115. Since April 30th, when we were standing at 116, as of today, we stand at 122. Facts are there. The quarantine does help. The uh, closing down of our communities help. The people of Hawaii and, and Maui County work awful hard to protect themselves and their families and their communities. And so I am really in tune to let's make sure we have the testing. And if testing is going to be illegal, hey, I don't know. I'm confused at that point. I don't know if I let people come back. I'd be worried. Our people deserve that much. So I'm, I'm in the point of I'd like to reopen the state. I know how devastated our economy has been and how many people are out of work right now. And I want to help those people. I want to get people back to some kind of normalcy. And our visitor industry, if it's a safe destination, they're going to want to come. And I want them to know that they come safely, they'll be traded with respect, they'll be safe here in Hawaii, and when they return home, they should be COVID-free also. You've taken the biggest hit your county has, right, because of the jobs tied to tourism. Yep, the biggest hit in tourism, and we've taken the biggest hit. We've had the most number of cases per capita. We've had the most number of deaths per capita. So our county has been bombarded in many ways, yet we have the only island outside of Niihau that has been COVID-free, which is Lanai. Only two cases are on the island of Molokai, and we did extensive testing there. And when we were at our height, we had Dr. Miskovich and his group come in and do a lot of testing, and we found no new cases or very few new cases and so now we're relatively confident of reopening, but we want to open up systematically and methodically and make sure each step we monitor so that we don't have an outbreak that we cannot control. And we as a community have learned so much in such a short time. You folks had the cluster at the, the medical facility, and that certainly got everybody on their toes across the state about what we need to do better. How are you looking at that experience now going forward? It's an experience I wish I never uh, experienced, <laughs> if you want to say it in that manner. But it's a good learning tool. And now our procedures and setup for pandemic 
is a lot more extensive because we've actually had a real pandemic hit the, hit the world, nation, and state. And so we know the residual effect when you don't exercise caution. And I think people are much more prepared now. Look at the number of cases of flu and, and, and of the simple cold that have dropped tremendously by medical experts who are telling me that because of good hygiene and being aware of social or physical distancing, we have seen a big drop in that area. So COVID-19 has had a positive effect. Also, it takes us time to restock and rethink how we do our visitor industry. Maybe, as the reports have been indicating, we were at capacity. Now we have to step back and make sure we do it right. So many variables come in. So reopening going to be phased in. I don't think everybody's going to run to Hawaii once the doors are open. But I know those who come, so long as they're being tested and are safe, they will come to a place that is very safe for them to enjoy with their, themselves and their family. How has the inter-island relaxation of travel restrictions been for Maui? Good. A lot of people have been coming. A lot of people can be coming to visit their friends and family, which they have not been able to really socialize with. And so I think that's a good, good indicator. However, we're still struggling. Many of the hotels won't open up until there is an opening to the world, if you want to use that term, so that they can, you know, accommodate the visitor. We don't have enough residents coming to open up hotels at this point. So a lot of factors are happening. They're good factors. I traveled yesterday for the first time to Honolulu in three and a half months. And the system seems to work. They were very adamant. They checked. They made sure they checked your phone. They called you right away. They did all the proper procedures I think we can put in place to protect our residents throughout the state of Hawaii. The blood bank, I know, was eager to see the travel restrictions lifted because then they could reach out and tap those donors that we need in order to keep our blood supply up. And that's one of the unseen impacts of closing down that we now recognize. Also, a lot of uh, medical equipment and as far as medical tests that were being sent to the mainland were delayed because there weren't as many flights. So there's a number of impacts that we really don't see on the peripheral, but as you get closer into the inner circle, you understand these are the impacts that affect our everyday life. And it's really the inter-island travel and the interstate travel or international travel has a telltelling effect, not just on the hospitality industry, but in other segments of our community. We're seeing, you know, more cases spring up at long-term care homes. I think you folks had one. And I know that there's lots of concern with families as we start to talk about schools reopening. Maui, our senior care facilities have done a terrific job. That one outbreak they had, which was very minor, but it still occurred, was patients being transferred from the hospital back to the elderly care facility. They were able to isolate them, keep them separated, and stop it in its tracks before it got spread within the facility. Uh, and I think that's what's happening in Oahu too. They're, they're quarantining groups and keeping those groups away from the others. As far as opening of schools, we know that's so important. Distance learning can and does do a pretty good job, but it doesn't accommodate many of those who live in remote areas in Maui, just like the Big Island, uh, island of Hawaii, we have a lot of remote districts that internet accessibility and Wi-Fi is not available readily. And so we've got to put them in areas where we can. In fact, I have a bus out in Hana today testing a Wi-Fi system so that they can look at educational and other means of communicating because the system they have out there is very, very spotty at best. And I know because when I go out there for public hearings, my cell phone doesn't work very often. So it's a bus that's been parked at Hana Bay, and it runs from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., and then in the afternoon from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., this Monday to this Friday. And so we're hoping that if that works, we're going to put something permanently there to help the citizens of Hana and Kanai and Kaupo in those remote areas of Maui. And I think the island of Hawaii, is also uh, looking at something like that. But 
getting everybody back in school altogether may not be the most safe way to do it. However, I know Mishikishimoto and, and the Department of Education has been working on it. They've given us an overview and what they're planning. And I really don't want to discuss it because there's still more aspects that have to be put together, more procedures. But I think they are looking to reopen August 4th and as safely as possible to protect our students and our residents. Well, yeah, our Keiki and our Kapuna are, are up there at the top of our priority yeah. list in this pandemic. Uh, but uh, the other big news, I think, is the concern about shipping. We had the incident with Young Brothers and all those containers uh, falling off, and everybody's trying to figure out wh what's up with that. And you have islands that depend on that barge for deliveries. Absolutely. And without those barges and those deliveries, we would be in a world of hurt. This is most of our commerce and food supply that comes in, comes through those barges. This is not a good time for something like this to happen, but it happened. And so hopefully we'll find out why and take necessary action to prevent it from happening in the future. We're all trying to see what we can do to help prop them up, help keep them going. But I would like assurances from the company, if I was to have a say in it, I would like to see what their management plan is, what their business plan is. You know, I'm a businessman, so, you know, uh, there's a lot that can be done that maybe is not being done. But I am not privileged to know that information, so I really can't speak towards it. But I believe it has to be a collaborative effort. If we're going to keep young brothers and young brothers want to, wants to stay here, we all need to sit at the table and understand what their business model is and how we can all work together to make it a better model to take care of the neighbor islands especially. But Oahu, you folks depend on shipping from the neighbor islands when it comes to food. We ship to Oahu from Maui and from the big island and Kauai. And so shipping is two ways. It's not just bringing to us. We send items to Oahu. So we all are in this together. That was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino talking to us this morning about so many COVID-related developments. Now it's time to take a look on the other side of the world. Officials in the Indian city of Delhi promised to test every household in the capital city within the next two weeks, while the Australian military is called in to contain an outbreak in the city of Melbourne. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 24th of June. Hello, I'm Valerie Sanderson. More grim predictions for the global economy as the pandemic accelerates. Every household in Delhi is to be tested in the next two weeks and the Australian military are asked to help contain a new outbreak. Millions of people worldwide have already lost their jobs due to the coronavirus pandemic, but now the International Monetary Fund predicts the global economy will be hit harder than previously thought. It believes economic activity in 2020 will decline by 5%. That's nearly 2% worse than it expected in April. Andrew Walker has more. It's only 10 weeks since the IMF's previous forecast and it now says the economic hit in the first half of this year was harder than is expected. That in turn is likely to increase what the report calls economic scars as firms close and people lose jobs. The number of people killed by the virus in Latin America and the Caribbean has now passed 100,000. More than half those deaths were in Brazil, where President Jair Bolsonaro has routinely downplayed the severity of COVID-19. A judge has ordered him to wear a mask in public and his leadership has been criticised by political rivals like Tabata Amaral from the Democratic Labour Party. I think he's trying so hard to hide the numbers because this is one of the few things that make him lose uh, support being Chui uh, among the people who support him the most. Because people are starting to see his action during the pandemic as, being, as not being very human. Authorities in the Indian city of Delhi have announced plans to test every household for the virus over the next two weeks because of an increase in cases. But quarantine restrictions that were eased earlier this month will not be reimposed. India has recorded 16,000 new infections in the past 24 hours, its highest one-day increase so far. The top U.S. health official for infectious disease says parts of the country are seeing a disturbing surge in new cases. Dr Anthony Fauci says the next few days are crucial for authorities to limit the rising infection numbers. Dr. Craig Spencer is Director of Global Health and Emergency Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. 
The best response to this should not have been an economic or a political one. It had to be a public health one. If we responded to this correctly in March and April, and really even now, we would be in a much better position, much like many other countries around the world that took this serious as a public health threat, not necessarily as a primarily economic one. The head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says the number of COVID-19 cases in Africa is increasing quickly and that more protective equipment and testing is urgently needed. The WHO says all African nations now have the capacity to test for the coronavirus in laboratories. At the start of the pandemic, only a dozen had this ability. A global charity is warning that coronavirus cases among women are being significantly underreported in a number of fragile states. Kelly Ryan from the International Rescue Committee fears that women in Somalia, Yemen and Afghanistan are being left out of testing programs. Women have less control over decision-making in the household. They also take care of the sick and elderly, and they have a lot of responsibilities around the household. So they are expected to continue working even when they fall ill. And they also have less access to information. So they might not be getting the information that they need to know about where they should go should they fall ill. Croatia has reimposed restrictions for travellers from several other Balkan countries after a spike in infections. From Thursday, visitors from Serbia, Bosnia, Kosovo and North Macedonia will have to self-isolate for 14 days upon arrival. The measures come days after an outbreak at an exhibition tennis tournament in Croatia and Serbia, which was organised by men's world number one, Novak Djokovic. The Australian military has been asked to help contain a coronavirus outbreak in the city of Melbourne as the country records its first death from the disease in a month. The country's health minister, Greg Hunt, blamed the new cases on recent protests in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Many Victorians and many Australians have said, gosh, if it's OK for 10,000 people to congregate, surely it would be OK for 10 in my family. And the message is it was never OK for that protest to have uh, gone ahead not because of the subject matter, noble, powerful, important, but because of the fact that two and a half weeks later, we have had an outbreak in Victoria. As businesses reopening after the lockdown wonder how to dispose of out-of-date stock, the Irish brewer Guinness has pioneered an unusual solution. It's providing thousands of barrels of its famous draft stout to fertilise willow and Christmas trees. By offering the drink as a nutrient for plantations, the company says it's providing an environmentally beneficial service. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the island's cultural diversity and a commitment to presenting art that inspires. More about its July 16th reopening at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum today on Bike Mars Cafe. With the economy opening and more tourists arriving in Hawaii, we'll find out how contact tracing works. We'll talk to the developers of Aloha Trace to see if technology can improve the process and how the Apple Google API works. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bike Mars Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Fleming and Associates Architecture and Planning, located in Hilo. Since 2009, working to provide design solutions that help to enhance island communities. Proud supporter of HPR. HPR's Ku'uvehi traveled to the Big Island on the first day that inner island restrictions were lifted. She is back on Oahu and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I did get a nice long time on the Big Island uh, speaking to folks about how things have been going sort of 
as businesses start to reopen. And one of the things that we did look at uh, that was interesting was talking to businesses right there in downtown Hilo, uh, who just a month ago, over a month ago, were relieved when Governor David Ige said, we are going to start to reopen these businesses starting uh, beginning in June, of course, with social distancing, and you guys take care of what you need to, but we can work on reopening. Uh, so partly good news. Uh, but with that mandatory 14-day quarantine still in place for tourists, uh, those stores that are businesses that have been dependent uh, for a long time on tourism dollars are still struggling, uh, even with uh, consumers as consumers start to trickle back in. Uh, but this has had uh, local business owners sort of figuring out how to increase their share of the Kamaina consumers, uh, because really right now they're, they're really the only ones shopping. Um, and speaking to Mua Merriman, uh, she is uh, the owner of Island Nation, a shop right there in downtown Hilo. In the past, she said she's had pretty much even split of tourists and locals, right, 50-50, uh, but that uh, it's hard to figure out who's going to continue to come, right, because locals are sometimes financially strapped. And so when I asked her uh, sort of what she sees moving forward as a business model for her, uh, this is what she had to say. You know, it's hard um, because that tourist income is, is definitely something that we all benefit from, but mm -hmm. I just think it's really important as a consumer to spend your money, whether you're a, a tourist or a local, in a way that benefits the community that you're living in or visiting in. Even if you have to spend you know, a little bit more, that money's gonna come back to you eventually. So I think if we can take this opportunity you know, to shift to a more sustainable yeah. economy, that, that's gonna benefit all of us. And Merman has sort of been on this track already. She was, you know, you can kind of tell from her her comments that she's always been a big supporter of local, and so she carries local products. Um, so it's been on her radar, but figuring out this has kind of just put her in that position where, okay, now I just have to focus on local until tourists uh, come back. But not everyone agrees with, with Merriman. I spoke to Ryan Williams, uh, who owns a bar in Kelkaha called Margarita Village, and it's right across the street from Hilo Harbor. So big boon for cruise ship passengers, right? Um, but he's he's still not back in business. Of course, uh, bars are still closed there. Uh, but he says as inter-island travel uh, reopens that 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 local more local consumers coming to the island could uh, be promising for businesses, but that uh, it'll still be hard to for the local consumer to carry these businesses through because of the financial situation that everyone is really in right now. You've got high unemployment. You've got uh, situations where folks are still furloughed if they're working in hotels. And so when asking the local consumer to pay for products that they may not necessarily need, that's always a, a tough ask. Uh, here's Williams. I mean, Hawaii is a very heavily tourist-based economy. I mean, that's just the reality of where we're located. You know, I will say this, Kama'aina and locals are very, very supportive of local businesses as much as they can, you know, but if people don't feel comfortable just spending money and needlessly, I don't know what sort of impact that'll have on, you know, things like the markets and, you know, even going out to bars and restaurants and that kind of thing. We'll see, hopefully it'll make a difference, but I really believe it won't be majorly getting back to normal until the tourists come back. Tourism is so pervasive. I remember talking uh, to business owners on Kauai as they began to reopen over a month ago. And uh, the idea that the local consumer is working at the restaurant that's closed or the bar that's closed and the hotel that's closed, all their disposable income is no longer coming in as well. So, you know, there's sort of this... Uh, I guess, domino effect of reopening tourism that could bring some of these local consumers back in. Uh, for Keith De La Cruz, so he owns and manages that Hilo Farmer's Market right downtown, open market. Um, I've got half of it is produce, fruits and vegetables, but the other half is arts and crafts and is actually uh, a very uh, highly frequented by uh, tourists when they do come by. And so uh, for him, he, he's saying vendors there really don't care who's coming back as long as somebody's coming back because it's a, been a really rough two and three months uh, for vendors there. Uh, but he says public health risk, the public health risk of contracting COVID-19, if you're going to continue to reopen, you know, travel 
uh, out-of-state travel is something that's sort of at top of mind, even though they're struggling financially. Here's Dela Cruz. Our demographics here is usually 40-60. Um, so 60% locals, 40, 40 tourists. So when that went away, you know, then, and then of course, uh, stay-at-home rules, you know, that really affected a lot of people. So I think uh, tourism getting back to how they want it to be is a good goal, but realistically, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to come back as fast as people want or as strong as people want. And we might even have a couple setbacks along the way. Dela Cruz has suggested that uh, more should be done uh, to ensure the safety or public safety of these businesses uh, from travelers that are coming in out of state, but also uh, inter-island as well, uh, because he, you know, he wants to see things like increased testing, even to the point of daily testing of tourists in the hotels, uh, making masks available in sort of travel hubs like the airport, just so that there are these extra precautions being taken uh, as these consumers come into their businesses. Okay, talking about the airport, how early did you have to go to the airport? <laughs> you know what? Uh, the initial advice, I think, coming from the press conference was to get there three hours before. And I, I when I did get there, I got there sort of right before 4.30, so only an hour and a half, two hours before In the morning. flight. Yeah. In the morning. Um, it wasn't it wasn't too bad because the, the kiosks weren't open yet. And I heard that from a lot of folks who were worried about how far in advance you should get there. Um, but I think perhaps because everyone else took those same precautions of getting there early. It wasn't too chaotic. It was actually very mellow morning at the airport. And same thing on the way back. The process seems to be working uh, well, at least in my experience, you know, the different stages and the paperwork. Um, and speaking to some of the travelers who did decide to make that initial uh, first flight, uh, they were, they were, uh, they felt safer knowing that, and I think you've heard this before, when you get to this uh, Department of Health, I think, worker station at the airport where they look at your paperwork, they'll call your phone. And they felt, uh, as a you know local resident, that if they're doing that for tourists and for everybody else, they feel a little safer knowing that we'll know how to get in contact with people. All right. Well, we heard the uh, Maui mayor say that his <laughs> experience was good coming to Honolulu, so... Uh, hopefully that holds, and yes. uh, and, and uh, then we'll see what happens with the visitors. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Mahalo. We've been talking with HBR's Kuve Hirishi about how businesses are faring now that inter-island travel has a green light. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, a company of people dedicated to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands since 1882. Matson.com. Tune in to HPR1 Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio Presents Blue Note virtually live. This week, singer-songwriter John Cruz plays songs ranging from Hawaiian to blues, folk, R&B, and more. A winner of Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Awards, Cruz is beloved for his captivating guitar playing, soulful vocals, and compassionate heart. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HBR1 or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu the Supreme Court's recent ruling on a landmark decision to protect the employment rights of LGBTQ workers is still reverberating across the nation. The decision was built on rulings from separate cases which involved the firing of employees tied to sexual identity and orientation. The Conversations' Harrison Patino spoke with Emily Marr, the Assistant General Counsel at the Hawaii Employers Council. The Supreme Court issued its decision in Bostock versus Clayton County 
And that case is actually a consolidated case comprised of three different cases heard by lower court. In each case, an employee alleged that their employer fired them simply for being homosexual or transgender. And the issue before the Supreme Court was whether Title VII, which makes it unlawful for employers to discriminate based on certain protected characteristics, such as sex, applied. And the reason this was an open question is because the term sex was not defined by Title VII. On June 15th, in a 6-3 decision authored by Justice Gorsuch, the Supreme Court held that an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender violates Title VII. Hawaii is one of 21 states nationally that already had protections for gay and transgender employees. Because we already had that statute in place, employees locally were already protected, but certainly adding the power of a Supreme Court decision and giving potential employees an avenue to challenge discrimination in federal court adds a degree of robustness to the protection. So has discrimination based off of sexual orientation, historically, has that been an issue here in the state? It has been an issue, um, certainly something employers have grappled with. And going forward, now that the Bostec decision you know, applies throughout the country, it's hopeful that it will be less of an issue because all employers have a duty to comply. Now, what does this mean as part of a larger recognition of LGBTQ rights, both nationally and here locally in Hawaii? Well, it, it's really huge. So the Bostec decision was the first national case that decided federal employment on a federal level that employment discrimination protection applies to gay and transgender employees. Certainly in recent years, there have been Supreme Court decisions that have expanded protections for gay individuals, but a lot of people are arguing that this is even more of a big deal. For example, gay marriage applies to anyone who wants to get married, but not everyone does, whereas everyone pretty much has a job. Now, nationwide, there are something like 1.5 million transgender people in the country and something around 11.5 million lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Do we have any sense of those kinds of populations here in Hawaii to better understand the, I guess, numerical scope of this on a state level? I don't know the numbers in Hawaii in particular, but I would imagine they would correspond to the national level. Now, notably, this decision was upheld by a Trump-appointed judge, that's Neil Gorsuch, and Chief Justice John Roberts, who before this has actually never signed an opinion supporting LGBTQ rights. In terms of legal recognition of LGBTQ people across the board, this seems like a pretty watershed moment. Absolutely. I think a lot of people were watching and waiting for this decision and expecting a different result. But it is important to recognize that even though and this is a huge landmark decision that is a major step forward for gay and transgender individuals. It's certainly not a panacea. Justice Gorsuch did leave a roadmap for people who are unhappy with the decision to challenge it. In his decision, he, he first reminded readers that the place to address unwanted consequences of old legislation lies in Congress. So he opened up the possibility of a legislative challenge. And he also explored two potential exceptions that are already a part of the law, both of which are religious in nature. So Title VII carves out claims concerning the employment relationship between a religious institution and its ministers. And separately, Congress has passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which Justice Gorsuch referred to as a sort of super statute that would displace the normal operation of other federal laws, including potentially Title VII. So the full impact of the decision is yet to be seen, and it will certainly be the subject of future litigation because that door was left open by the decision. Now, a lot of experts are cautioning that this decision by the Supreme Court is not an indication of a more liberal or leftward-leaning inclination for the court going forward, that this was purely a legal decision. Do you think it's important to distinguish that between people who are viewing this as a landmark victory for LGBTQ rights? Well, I think it's important to recognize that many People watching and waiting for this decision did not expect um, a conservative majority to produce this opinion. And the fact that we've reached this result and the fact that even in one of the dissents, Justice Kavanaugh applauded the outcome, just not the way in which it was achieved, he argued that the Supreme Court was legislating, is a huge victory. And it does lay the groundwork potentially for other federal laws because of the language and the requirement that there not be any discrimination based on sex 
is part of other legal statutes as well. So some people think that this will be extended more broadly outside of the employment context. From what I understand, Justice Alito was far less diplomatic in his dissenting opinion. Is that correct? It was a little bit stronger, yes. Aside from just the employment issue that this directly relates to, are there any sort of tangential issues related to this that you think this ruling is going to have an impact on? Well, I think that the most direct impact is for employers. Um, So, again, the majority of states in the country did not have any legislation protecting their transgender employees. And to have now this national requirement that protects gay and transgender employees is huge. The timing in which this happens is is sort of um, in the midst of an already challenging year for employers. 2020 has been a whirlwind year for employers due to the coronavirus, I'm sure you can imagine. And many employers are really busy processing the new legal landscape created by local, state, and federal laws on that front. So I think the, the really important thing for employers to do now is make sure that while they're managing all of the new coronavirus requirements, they take this opportunity to review their policies, review their training manuals, and make sure that they comply with Bostic as well. Any final thoughts on how this ruling will have implications here locally? Certainly. So at the Hawaii Employers Council, we work with about 800 local employers. And a large part of what we do is make sure that these employers, these members, are aware of all of these legal developments. So things like ensuring their training handbooks, their manuals are up to date. For employers who do not have the benefit of this membership, they should really make sure that they check all of their uh, employment materials and that they're offering, they're requiring compliance with Bostock. That was the Conversations Harrison Patino talking with the Hawaii Employers Council's Emily Marr about a recent Supreme Court ruling that upholds the rights of LGBTQ workers. In today's reality check, we get a look inside the database on police misconduct that Honolulu Civil Beat has been compiling for the past eight years. Reporter Nick Gruby joins us today from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, it's probably afternoon for you because of the time difference, but um, eight years, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah, me neither. Um, So uh, in 2012, I started building a a database of every Honolulu police officer who had either been suspended or fired for misconduct based off of uh, annual reports to the legislature. It was part of an investigative reporting project uh, that we launched back then. And uh, when we finally published the story in 2013, uh, one of the big findings was that about once a week on average, a Honolulu police officer was either suspended or fired uh, for a serious misconduct. And that, in, in fact, much of this misconduct was related to uh, potential criminal activity um, by those officers. Yet one of the things that we didn't really know uh, or that we couldn't find out was the names of these officers or any details uh, about what it was they had actually done. Um, Now, after that series published, we decided to keep this uh, database up to date. And over the course of the past eight years, we've uh, been able to document uh, nearly 800 uh, incidents of officer misconduct. Um, And throughout all of this, the legislature has uh, continually failed to act on uh, trying to um, lift this secrecy provision that protected these officers from having their, many of their names disclosed. Now, you had 800 incidents over a span of 20 years, right? I mean, you went back over two decades. That's correct. Uh, we had documents going back to 2000, and uh, recently we updated the database to include um, 
as many years as we could have, uh, and that is from 2000 to 2019, of course. Uh, we are still in the middle of 2020, but uh, presuming that we get another one of these reports in uh, January or February of next year, we will uh, add that 21st year. Well, now, this is timely because lawmakers are looking like they're going to actually pass something that lifts this veil of secrecy about uh, police misconduct. That's correct. I think with the nation nationwide protests that we're seeing over uh, the killing of George Floyd and uh, other individuals, uh, uh, black individuals, by police officers uh, across the country, the legislature is now looking at uh, taking some sort of police reform action itself. And uh, one of these bills, HB 285, would finally overturn about uh, two and a half decades worth of secrecy uh, for officer misconduct. Now, we've seen other uh, states do this in response to the nationwide protests, including New York, uh, which their legislature recently allowed this information to be public. And now I guess it's up to the Hawaii legislature to see they will do the same. Now, of course, over the past several years, uh, similar bills have come before the legislature. Uh, they've gotten close to becoming uh, to getting passed, but mysteriously died behind closed doors in conference committee. So uh, at this point, um, it's a matter of wait and see. Well, I know that they were talking yesterday about possibly changing things, but that the names wouldn't be released uh you know, it would be just the names going forward versus the names that say over the last 20 years. Sure. And, you know, that that's problematic for a whole uh, host of reasons, uh, one of which, and I think that this database that uh, we uh, re-upped recently sort of shows that, is that we have over 800 other incidents of officer misconduct uh, in which we're not sure who these officers are. We're not sure if they're still on the force, and we're not mm -hmm. sure if they're actually in positions of power, whether or not they are um, uh, at the top ranks of the department, or if it's the person who's pulling you over for speeding down H1. Yeah, and I, um, I want to know that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll just have to see uh, what lawmakers come up with. But thanks so much, Nick. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All righty. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on police accountability, visit civilbeat.org. It's around this time that the figures in Hawaii history come to life in the cemetery as part of Pupu Theater. This year, things are a little different, and the performances will come online. The theme is Woman's Triumph, celebrating 100 years of the 19th Amendment. Take a listen. My name is Wilhelmina Kekela Okalaninui Wittemann Dowsett. I was born on March 8, 1861, in Lehui, Kauai. By the early 20th century, the American West states, started granting women the right to vote. And I and other like-minded women would gather and give talks designed to raise awareness. I hosted a special meeting at my home to adopt a constitution and bylaws. Imagine my surprise when one of the members exclaimed that, up to the present time, the Native women have not known just what steps to take and therefore have made no progress. But with Mrs. Dowsett as the president, the cause will surely advance. I accepted the position with equal measure of thrill and anxiety. And thus, the National Women's Equal Suffrage Association of Hawaii was born. That was Karen Kaulana portraying Wilhelmina Kekela Okalani Nui Dowsett, who led the largest suffrage organization here in the islands. Kaulana spoke to us about how she felt the character reached out to her. We're doing this in the backdrop of this COVID-19 pandemic and everything going on in the world. And I personally was transitioning back to work after being home, working from home for two and a half months. So my life was really crazy. And so I was trying to learn the script and not really um, having a lot of time to research her 
or getting to know her as I usually do when I get a part like this. But this is how strong Wilhelmina is. Every time I would go to work on the script, something would happen that would take me away from the script. I would get like an emergency call or at one point a whole shelf fell down in my house. I mean, everything kept taking me away from the script. And I thought, what is going on? This is so weird. Every time I go to open the script. So a friend of mine recommended that I, you know, take some time, pray, and talk to her. Because obviously she's blocking me from doing it. And I took some time. I did some research. I looked at her pictures. I looked at her information online. And I realized that her Hawaiian name was not in the script. And her birthday, it was a typo. It was a mistake. And I thought, this is, this is an indication of how strong this woman is. She kept taking me away from the script so that I would correct it and I would figure out what was missing. And nothing against Kevin Keaveney, who wrote the script, who wrote a beautiful script. It's amazing and beautiful and unfolds her story so beautifully. But this, I've never had this experience doing cemetery theater before when you portray a real person that they really come through and they are with you. And so getting to know her has been an amazing experience because I really felt she wanted her Hawaiian middle name as part of it because she talks about how she's really these two two pillars that brought her up were her, her Caucasian father, her German father, immigrant father, and her Hawaiian mother, and both were equally important to her. That's why she wanted her Hawaiian name in it. And then also her birth date, she wanted to make sure her birth date was correct. And so until I took that time to research her and to really delve in and to get to know her, then I was able to finally get through the script and memorize the script and really be able to tell her story. So that's how strong a woman she is. She kept making things happen in my life until I really delved into her life and got to know her. So something was not right, but you felt guided. Very much so. It was very guided. And so it just showed me how strong a woman she is. And, you know, she started the National Equal Women's Suffrage Association of Hawaii in 1912, which is right around the time when this movement was taking off in a lot of places. And she was inspired by Carrie Chapman Catt, who was the president of the International Women's Suffrage Association and was making a 19-month world tour and um, promoting the suffrage movement. And she was inspired by her, and she heard her that this woman, Carrie Chapman Cat, was going to come to Honolulu on her journey home. And so she cabled an invitation to have her lecture here. And that's how she started organizing. She started to organize a formal group to hear this woman speak, and she kind of put together that organization. And it was not until eight years later in 1920, when the 19th Amendment passed, that women got the right to vote. So she worked on this for almost a decade. When you were doing the research, what did you learn about the times and pushback, if there was any pushback? In that eight years between her beginning her work in this movement, in the women's suffrage movement, all the way to the time of the passage of the 19th Amendment, there were many ups and downs, and there was a lot of pushback. They had some supporters. Hawaii was a territory at that point. And throughout the islands, people were supportive of women getting the right to vote. But it took a lot to get people to act on it. It's like people were just saying, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yes, women should vote. But then (laughs) to get people to do something about it was another story. And some of the pushback were from men in politics. You know, they would bring up things like, well, what are the women going to do if they have the right to vote? They're going to have to be subjected to all the duties as the men. So they're going to have to sit on juries. And what are they going to do with their children? You know, they're going to have to leave their children with friends and family or with hired nurses. How are they going to perform these duties? Some of the men also thought that once the women have the right to vote, it might change the dynamics of politics because women may not vote in the same ways that other men might vote, and they might lose their seats. So there was some uncomfortability about that, and there was a whole political machine that didn't think women getting the right to vote would be a good idea because it would be a risk to them being turned out of their political positions. So there was some pushback, a lot of pushback, until, in fact, in Hawaii, they worked and worked to get 
suffrage here before it was changed federally, and they did not succeed. They did not succeed, so it was rejected. So can you talk about the the history of uh, women's rights in the monarchy? Well, in the Hawaiian monarchy, many people had the right to vote. It was very inclusive. So even, you know, Asian immigrants, a lot of people could vote and participate, especially in the Queen's era, but even before that, Queen Lili'uokalani, many, many people were given the right to vote, including women, men. It was very diverse, all the different nationalities. And then when the Bayonet Constitution of 1887 happened, some of those rights were taken away. Hawaiians were able to vote, but in a limited manner. And there was much more required of them to vote. They had to earn a certain amount of salary. They had to be able to read and write English. They had to, uh, there was all these requirements all of a sudden with the Bayonet Constitution of 1887. And Asians, the vote for Asians was taken away. So Asians could no longer vote. So as far as history, though, women did have that place and that voice during the monarchy, lost it during annexation. And so while the rest of the U.S. marks this milestone, Hawaiian women really were ahead of their time. They were queens and chiefesses. They, They created and passed laws. They formed government. So, yes, they were already leaders of nations for us in Hawaii. That was actor Karen Kaulana talking to us about Hawaii's voting history and the Pupu Theater event underway now. You can watch the suffrage performances online, but the Mission House Museum is asking that you kokua and pay what you can. Register and you can view the performances of five notable women, but only until Sunday this weekend. For links, head to our website. Join us tomorrow as we host a call-in show looking at the future of athletic events that normally draw thousands of participants each year in the islands. Triathlons, marathons, swimming and cycling events all turned upside down. Have you been affected by a cancellation of a road race, swim, or bike ride? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217, or call in live. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works, too. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.